Well, before we get this going, uh, we know there's plenty happening in the world right now with Ukraine and Russia. Um, you don't listen to us for our inputs on international diplomacy, and it's certainly not our area of expertise. Um, there's going to be plenty of other people lacking credentials in the tech community that will weigh in on this ad nauseum over the next couple of days, weeks, months. And so we'll we'll spare everyone three more, but uh, it should go without saying, um, but I'll say it anyway, our our thoughts are with those in Ukraine, and uh, we hope there's a swift end to this needless and devastating um, aggression. Nikita, I know your family is directly impacted by this. Maybe you can share a little bit of that for, for everyone listening. Yeah. So uh, my family's safe, but I, I my mom's side of the family is from Ukraine. So I have an uncle and an aunt uh, in Kiev. Um, so the events unfolding, you know, they certainly hit home. They're they're doing well. They're migrating to the western part of the country in Lviv and planning to cross into Poland. Um, and so I'll be watching closely. So there are challenges, you know, airports not working, uh, the, but they are letting women, uh, women and children into Poland. So uh, it's looking pretty, pretty promising, and we'll see how it plays out over the next few weeks. Well, keep us posted. We're going to be thinking about it. Yeah. Our thoughts are with everyone in, in Ukraine right now. Um, so I guess if, if you're not in a place to laugh along with the absurdities in the tech world right now, we totally get it and hope you come back to us when you are. But for everyone else, hopefully this serves as a break um, from the terrible news over the last 72 hours. Yeah, I'll say it, it, we're reminded of uh, the first SNL sketch, uh, first SNL episode after 9-11, when Rudy Giuliani came on and uh, someone asked, are we allowed to be funny? And Giuliani said, why start now? So, you know, we'll see if we start now this time too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with that as a caveat, let's get going. Welcome to the fifth episode of Three Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and I'm joined today by my esteemed co-hosts, the Don of the G-Wagon, the Jewish Gatsby, Nikita Beer, and the, the George Costanza of Venture Capital, Zach Kukoff. I actually doing, think guys? I prefer the Stanley Tucci of Venture Capital. If we're just going to reframe, if we can reframe who my bald icon is for a second, it's Tucci, not Costanza. <laughs> I think you wear the Costanza thing so well, though. I, you know, we've, we posted some videos comparing and I don't know. I think it's you. I, I think it's a pretty aspirational person to be, you know, like George Costanza is an aspirational person to be. I mean, I agree. He was modeled after Larry David, the most liked uh, guy in America right now. I, I do love, I do love Larry David. I will tell you that that is that. It, but it's the idea is you want to be the looks of Stanley Tucci with the attitude of Larry David. That would be I like, like the, the the combo transformer. I'm trying to be you now. Look, look, Zach, you can't have it all. <laughs> I, I, who says honestly? You're you're a you're a young soul, or you're a young person and with an old soul. Yeah, I, definitely uh, not a young I, soul. Yeah, no, 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 definitely misspoke, uh, misspoke there. But um, well, other than the uh, terrible world events that's been going on, it's kind of like other than that, how is the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Um, how, how how's the how's the week been, Zach? You're in L.A. How is it out there? Uh, I am I'm in Nikita's neck of the woods. I'm here a little bit early for our friends at Upfront, uh, putting on the Upfront Summit. It was so the day the first day I got here, uh, I hosted a big dinner at an outdoor restaurant, only to find out it was going to be 45 degrees at night. So that wasn't so great. But other than that, it's been beautiful, uh, warm, sunny. It almost feels 
uh, like sinful to be enjoying myself and having a nice like trip in LA. Everything's going on. Welcome to LA. Yeah, long LA. I, you know, I, I, I kind of misrepresenting. I thought it was always like sixty five and sunny. This whole forty degree thing. By the time I get out there, hopefully that's that's flushed through the system. I was more bundled up when I landed in LA than I was when I took off in Boston. So make of that what you will. I gotta say, wow. long, long Boston, famously mild Boston winters, rearing their head again once again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we uh, so we're actually going to do our first IRL uh, dinner meetup since we've been doing this. Pretty funny. We've uh, we've. We've had five episodes or whatever, and we're finally going to break bread. So we'll see how we'll see how all that goes. Nikita, are you going to host us at the house? The house that yeah. is so famous on Instagram. Yeah, the the famous beer house. Uh, I have a bunch of engineers in my house working right now on multiple different app ideas. So you'll uh, you'll you'll see how the sausage is made. This is actually all once again a scam just to get allocation in Nikita's app. We're going to have <laughs> dinner at his house, and we're just going to walk up and down the lines of engineers trying to sell them. <laughs> I like it. Uh, I, well, I'm really looking forward to it. So, uh, yeah, no. Well, well, I will see you guys on a uh, Monday night. So, I guess a quick update from uh, a topic of last week. Uh, so, we we spoke about the Coinbase QR ad for for a little while, and um, there's been a a little bit of an update here. So, give the quick background for the people that don't live on tech Twitter. Um, but basically, what happened was on Sunday, uh, a week after the Super Bowl, um, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase decided to post a thread about how the app came to be. Now, threads are something that consistently go viral on Twitter, gives you an opportunity to give thought leadership. And so a good opportunity to see how how things actually occurred on the Coinbase ad, uh, or so he thought. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll link it in the show notes. Uh, but basically, the short version of it is he said that uh, an outside agency pitched him a bunch of standard Super Bowl ads, quote unquote. Uh, they, they passed on all of them. They were short on time. He said the Coinbase team all rallied together and ultimately came up with the idea of this bouncing QR code. And, and the way the, the tweet ended or one of the tweets ended was that no ad agency would have done this ad. Um, well, what, what happened subsequent to that uh, was Kristen Cavello, the, the CEO of the Martin agency, uh, responded saying with timestamps and page notes, basically saying, our team actually pitched ad concepts, quote unquote, for the Super Bowl with floating QR codes on a blank screen. And I think she said this was in August of last year. So um, that was a pretty direct response with the timestamps of how it came to be. Um, 12 hours after the original tweet, Brian Armstrong added, Although we didn't work with a traditional ad agency, I'd be remiss not to mention the creative firm we worked with who actually created the ad, commissioned the song, got clearances, etc. Honestly, felt like we were all one team, so I didn't realize it. Thank you. <laughs> then the CMO of Coinbase came back and basically implied that the idea was different than the idea that the Martin agency suggested and she subsequently got ratioed and a bunch of people in her comments and all that. Kind of a hilarious and un unnecessary cell phone um, by Brian Armstrong. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts, Nikita, on, on how this all played out. My rule of thumb has always been once you start arguing on the internet, you've already lost. There's, there's no way to win. Uh, I think it would probably, they should have just ignored it. Um, I think it's not, it's probably not as black and white as the tweets had framed it. I mean, I'm sure every ad agency had pitched a QR code concept to every company that was doing a Super Bowl ad. Cause we've been, we've been literally scanning these things since, 
like for the last two years every single day. Uh, so I, I, I think by just engaging, it made him look more guilty uh, that like they they didn't give them credit. Uh, but I mean, it, it is a pretty common trope of, you know, ad agencies coming up with innovative concepts and not getting credit for the, the work that they do. Totally. Yeah. I think to the point of arguing on the internet in general, just like, isn't a great idea, right? Just had she, had she or Armstrong just responded wrong and not elaborated, I think everyone would have been like, oh, what a clap back, what a known, you know, and it would have changed the whole narrative, but they, they sort of started apologizing and explaining the situation. And I hate that we lose all this nuance, right? Like they were well-intentioned in this whole thing, trying to actually give the story of how it came to be. And to be honest, one of my uh, my girlfriend's brother-in-law is the VP of marketing at Anheuser-Busch. And he said that he said that like they were thinking about a bouncing QR code for uh, a Budweiser ad or something. Right. And so it's like how many people were probably noodling on some version of this? I'm sure it was countless over the course of the last two years. And so ideas are it's the execution and all this stuff. Right. And so actually getting to the muck of timestamps, you've kind of already lost the conversation. Well, not to speak about this one specifically, but in general, I think it's obvious the more surface area you give people on Twitter, right? Like the less uh, you're able to defend against. If you, the less the the less you give people to respond to, the better handled it is. Because as we both we all know, basically everybody on Twitter is bad faith arguing all the time, looking to play to the audience and score points. No one is ever trying to actually engage and learn something on Twitter. At least in my experience, or maybe our messy corner of the universe, that's true. I think it's funny though that like you have Brian Armstrong was drawn so drawn to create a thread. He wanted thought leadership so bad. The allure of a thread was so strong that it pulled him in. And he really he probably didn't have any context around this project. And he's like, well, I'm I'm gonna get some engagement right now. Uh, totally. Once you get once you get a hit of that sweet thread dopamine and you see the viral, like people will throw their lives away. It's what I imagine like heroin addicts, you know, just chasing that thread virality. And, you know, he was going for it. He was like, this is a good one. This is my opportunity. <laughs> and just like get your facts right a little bit on the, the whole circumstance. Right. Uh, it's just, you know, and, and I can totally imagine how it happened was he thought he knew everything that had happened and he just sort of sat down and like started drafting this thread on like a Sunday morning and press send. We've all been there where we press send on some tweet that, you know, we probably wish we hadn't done. Yep. And you know, he like sent it and someone had to come to him and be like, Hey, Brian, like not exactly how this came to be, right? I love the metaphor of thread posting as the modern day chasing the dragon. Like, I, I wonder, are we going to lose a generation of best and brightest 29-year-olds to posting threads? Are we going to have a whole Seattle grunge world of people, a culture in SF just of people posting threads? There was, um, not to drive back to the Russia-Ukraine stuff, but... There was a, a, like a number of people who decided to use today to do content marketing for themselves instead of being respectful of what's going on. That feels like the, the apex of thread culture. Thread culture is oh, when totally. you need the engagement so bad that when there's an international war brewing, you're like, gosh, time to post the thread on like five leadership tips I learned from Putin. I saw I saw a VC actually shilling uh, one of their portfolio companies in in, in a tweet, right, uh, saying like, 
hey, you know, use our meditation app uh, if you're stressed by the event. And it's like, dear God, but- It was, Zach, it was two point, of their portfolio companies. <laughs> two of their portfolio companies, that's right. Uh, Zach, to your point, like I, I really do think fentanyl and thread posting are gonna be like the issues of our generation that people just throw their lives away chasing. Those are like the two <laughs> the two things we're gonna have to reckon with. I, I can't wait for national policy preventing people from getting into threads. I want D.A.R.E. in elementary schools, fifth grade education, teaching kids, don't get hooked on thread posting. Shit posting, not great, but at least better than thread posting. I think that's 100% right. Um, well, the other thing that I thought was interesting about all, all of this, Nikita, last week, kind of coincidentally, you posted a uh, tweet that said, I can't repeat this enough. If your company origin story is boring, make it up. Literally everything I've ever said about my company was made up. And so it's actually an interesting <laughs> concept of like narratives and how those shape PR and marketing. So I guess first and foremost, what what actually prompted that? And can you talk a little bit about like how you think about narratives? So it was a shit post, to be clear. Uh, not everything about my company was made up. But what inspired that tweet was I was listening to this podcast of a founder telling the origin story of, of his company. And I, it was literally the most boring thing I've ever heard in my entire, it was like excruciating here. I, I was like about to text him like saying, you should pull that podcast off because that, that was like the worst, <laughs> the most uninteresting thing I've ever heard. Um, and so I, I think people should just take some creative license when crafting the narrative around why their company exists. But th that tweet infuriated so many people. Like they were equa equating it to like account accounting fraud. But really, who cares if it's like real or not? Just tell a cohesive story about why your product should exist. And I, I, everyone like thinks there's this like inception moment around like something that happened uh, and that and then the idea merged like linearly, but there's never any singular point. Um, so just, you know, find the most interesting framing is what I suggest to founders and then simplify that story. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how real it is. I mean, just don't, don't commit fraud or something. I feel like we actually want founders to have kind of ridiculous founding stories. Like if you're an employee at a company and you're working for effectively below market comp in a lot of ways, right? Your, your stock probably isn't worth as much as it would be if you worked at Fang and your cash comp in most startups is certainly worse than it would be if you were like a generic person at Fang. You're motivated by the mission and the mission oftentimes comes from the, oh, I experienced this when I had my thing that happened X, Y, and Z and not oftentimes the far more realistic story of like, yeah, there were two MBAs who did a market size analysis of everything in the world. And they found out this is like the third biggest market that didn't have an existing player. And they decided to go raise money for it. Like that's a little bit less inspiring than like, yeah, my aunt's cousin experienced this horrible thing. And now I'm starting my company as a result of that. I, I actually don't think it's a bad thing to go out and, and personalize it, but it helps you keep people. We all sort of have lizard brains and like the simple narrative, like the muck of all this stuff, the details, it kind of ties back to the wrong point on Twitter. It's like, we just want the simple answer in all this stuff. And it's interesting, like two founding stories that aren't true or have been reported to not be true were eBay and Netflix, right? Like the narratives around each. So the Netflix story was that Reed Hastings got uh, a late blockbuster charge and was like, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't the way things could be. And Mark Randolph, his co-founder, revealed in a book that they were actually just like thinking about what the next 
uh, opportunity was outside of books, which Amazon had already captured, right? And like eBay had this big narrative about uh, Pierre Omidyar was basically saying he built a site so his fiance could could sell unique Pez dispensers or something, right? And that was like the galvanizing story back in the day. And so, you know, I, I get it. This has happened, but these things, like these narratives have happened, but they're not actually true. I kind of love Bezos as an OG with this and like never represented it as anything other than like, no, I realized like books are infinitely scalable and can't actually be stored like in a in a full facility. And so I realized the Internet was perfect for that. Right. He never came up with the bullshit version of it. I feel like his brain is so robotic. He was like, what do you mean? I craft a marketing message. I just no. it was books or that. But was what, that would, was what would the marketing product. message be? One day I was reading a book and I realized what if I could have this book in my couch right now without having to go to the store? Like, I just don't even know like that there's, even the marketing version of it is like 95% of basically what he already says. But I mean, it's kind of, it, that would have been a much more wholesome, like authentic story than thinking books were the perfect product to service on the internet because of the infinite volume, right? And so, I mean, again, I, I respect that he didn't do that. And I'm sure all the people in Nikita's replies comparing it to like, you know, he's Nikita Elizabeth Holmes beer or whatever. Like, I'm sure those people also respect that Bezos stuck with the real narrative here. But it's funny that like he just never did. I actually feel like it's far more authentic for him to keep what he said. Like, clearly it wouldn't be authentic to Bezos to go out and say that he had this lived human experience. It's far more authentic for him to be the MBA. I think it's it is funny though like the the when you go to 0 to 1 with some of these companies the actual thing that resonates is really mundane and kind of trivial and sometimes like embarrassing like the early days of Facebook the whole function was so you didn't have to ask someone for their phone number after you meet them at a party because you have too much anxiety and you don't want to put yourself out there so you can just type in their name and add them and message them then like that use case can't like uh, galvanize a group of people uh, so over time you kind of have to evolve it into we're trying to make the world more open and connected uh, but you know that flirting use case was that what got that initial velocity going? I don't know. I, I think you could basically pitch a lot of employees on, hey, tech employees, have you ever been too anxious to ask somebody out? That feels like a pretty galvanizing uh, pitch, actually, for most of the tech folks I know. Nikita, what what was the actual founding story? We know you iterated on a bunch of ones, but like, was there some real version of how you had this aha and then some like bullshit version that you spun to VCs to get them like all excited about it? Yeah, I mean, the story that we told was that, you know, the internet is really a toxic, can be a toxic place and it can make us feel kind of terrible after we use it. Uh, we, we People are really mean to each other. Um, but, you know, I the, the way it, the idea kind of emerged was there was another app that was at the top of the app store called Saraha. Uh, it was this app builds in Saudi Arabia and it was blowing up with teens and I actually saw uh, a one of their users uh uh, tweet at the founder saying, look at this awful message I received. And the guy just replied, if you don't like these messages, don't use the app. And I was like, oh my God, this is like some of the worst publicity management, like PR management I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, and so I was like, well, maybe we can control what users say so that people don't have those experiences. But, uh, you know, that that whole interaction, that observation is not that great of a story. So I, you know, I, 
I took a little bit of artistic license and reshaped it to be something cleaner and that could be retold. My team got excited around that narrative and uh, we put it up on the FAQs and it wasn't necessarily us like lying. It was just telling a, a much simpler narrative that people could uh, digest. So Nikita, what, what was the simpler like narrative version that you put on the FAQs? Uh, so we wanted, like our aim was to make people feel good about themselves after they used our app. Um, and so we came out and said, our, like our mission is to improve the mental health of teens. Uh, even though, you know, a lot of the use case of our app was, you know, teens flirting and kind of uh, s- sending kind of messages to, to the person they're attracted to. Um, we still got a lot of messages from teens saying they decided not to commit suicide because of our app. And that, we got those almost every day. So, uh, you know, even though Facebook shut down our app, we were still pretty proud of the impact we had during that period of time that, uh, that we were running. Okay, Logan, are you gonna are you gonna shill now? <laughs> yes. Uh, whether you are hate listening or actually enjoying listening to the pod, uh, we appreciate if you uh, can subscribe and also share if you think there's anyone else that would enjoy us uh, bantering, messing around on Saturday morning. I can't believe you just you just said like and subscribe. Another topic that feels right up our alley uh, that I was thoroughly enjoying um, on President's Day Monday, uh, Donald Trump's Truth Social launched. Um, So for those that don't know, Truth Social was an iOS app, is an iOS app that launched on Monday and it shot quickly to the top of the app store for free apps. Um, It also hit a lot of problems. It turns out maybe uh, Donald Trump might not be the uh, the technologist uh, or leading a team of, of technologists to, to build a social app. So registration couldn't be completed for a number of people. There was a partial adage. There was an internal wait list um, as they were trying to manage the infrastructure load. Terms of service wouldn't actually load. Uh, it turned out that the Truth Social logo was very similar to Trelar, Trailar. Uh, a fleet telematics business in the UK. Um, So they're now investigating legal recourse. Uh, So a very um, convoluted, chaotic lunch as only our former president of the United States uh, could do. So uh, I guess one of the funniest things for me is that instead of tweets, they're called truths, which is uh, just ironic uh, in and of itself. (laughs) It's incredible that they've solved the misinformation problem in one fell swoop. All you have to do is declare every post the truth and you no longer have to deal with it. Sounds very nice. 1984. <laughs> I, I only tweet truths anyway, so I, you know, it's very familiar for me. Uh, you know, we in, both in know we both know that is not a truth. That's a that's a truth social truth, not a Twitter.com truth. I, I feel like truth social. You could make like a billion dollars just by you know the kind of the old Nigerian prince scam, but just just <laughs> like oh, I'm a I'm a Trump. I'm Trump's nephew, and you know the the president needs your help, right? And send it to this uh, crypto account or something. Truth Social feels just like Twitter, but nobody starts their post with, I don't mean this in a racist way, but. So, so Nikita, what are your, what are your thoughts on the uh, durability of this app? And do you, does it have any chance of survival after this terrible launch, after all the infrastructure failures they've had? What's your opinion here? I mean, I, I think the amount of hype around it doesn't really seem to line up with a level of risk and uncertainty. Like the, the SPAC that's connected to this app, uh, DWAC, is now trading at over over three billion dollars. And I, I think investors don't really like, at least retail investors and Wall Street don't understand that creating a social app that ends up being sticky is a black swan event. It happens like once every decade. 
99.9% of all social apps fail. Like you could really count the ones that have succeeded on like three fingers. Um, so even with a celebrity endorsement like Trump, the, the chances are still slim. The celebrity endorsement, it certainly helps with acquiring users, but acquiring users, you could do that with investor money, a viral TikTok video, but whether they'll stick around, like the, this app has the same probability of users sticking around as any other app. Um, we, we saw the same pattern play out with David Dobrik's uh, Dispo app, where it had a surge of millions of users and most subsequently churned. Uh, for an app to actually stick, the, the network effects need to form quickly. So all, the way users connect with each other has to be perfectly executed, and the engagement loops need need to have them keep coming back. So uh, this is sort of me putting on my not invest uh, not investment advice or not financial advice. I, I think at like at the current price that this stock is trading, I think you have a pretty good asymmetric bet here of uh, shorting it. Because apps with this amount of momentum are typically priced, at least the ones that I've invested in that have reached number one, are typically priced at about 100 million valuation. But this is now trading at like 30x that price with the same probability of failure as all those others. So, I mean, I don't encourage people to short a stock since, you know, there's uncapped downside. Um, but this seems like there's pretty good risk and reward. I, I will say, uh, notably, D.E. Shaw, who had a pretty large position in the SPAC, has dumped their entire position, presumably, uh, and done quite well in doing so. Nikita, if you were sitting in, you know, call it Dispo or Paparazzi or now Truth Social, right, and you have sort of the flavor of the month uh, moment, what do you do to actually convert that from like, hey, we have the hot five minutes of attention to we're going to make the attention last past three months? I, I actually think this approach to going to market is like basically the kiss of death. Um, you grow way too fast. You prematurely exhaust your audience's attention before you can iterate and figure out what works. So at least in my experience, I used to do launches like that and it always you know, would just uh, crash and burn. It, the better approach is try to get some like little... Uh, you know, petri dish working where you're, you've mm -hmm. geofenced your users. You're you're not like uh, letting people sign up and let the cat out of the bag too early, uh, and you can figure things out. When TBH was scaling uh, at our like it was growing out of our first school that we had launched, we saw that this thing was going viral. So we geofenced it around three states. Uh, to and our our team, my team was not happy with that decision. They were like, "We, we shouldn't do this. The, like, we we have all this momentum, but we geofenced it around three states, and we spent uh, about an, about six weeks rebuilding the app, uh, rearchitecting it, adding features, and then we relaunched. And I think that's the approach I generally recommend to founders: is don't don't go chasing those uh, top line numbers. Get get the engagement loops right. Get the network effects working, uh, and make sure users retain. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things like Facebook obviously notoriously launched in the different schools, right? Started with Harvard and then it spread through the Ivy League. And so there was like a natural core market that was self-contained in all of this. But building one of these social apps, I've never I've never done it, but it's it's equal parts like the actual infrastructure that it works, right? And gosh, you remember all the fail whales of early days of Twitter, how painful that was to deal with. So you need the actual infrastructure to work and then you need the network itself to be self-reinforcing and have compelling content. And you need those two things to kind of work symbiotically, right? And so if you artificially squeeze one part or the other, like it's just, it's not gonna work. And so now you have all these people showing up, trying to start a network effect that exists on this app. Clearly there are people that are so passionate for Donald Trump that I think they're gonna be far more forgiving than some of these other apps, right? And their willingness to keep banging their head against the wall to get it to work. But like at some point they're gonna be exhausted of the app crashing, not being able to get on, whatever, right? But doesn't your example sort of undermine that a little bit? like? Twitter fail well was constant, and yet here we all are as addicted as ever, right? Like maybe the the amended version is possible. You have to have and Nikita. I'd, I'd like to get you know your thoughts, but like you have to have the network effect spinning before you know before you go big because if the infrastructure uh, isn't there, it'll it'll shut down. But like I, I actually think the lesson, at least that I took from some of this stuff, is people will power through a lot of really bad infrastructure work if they're getting core social utility out of the actual app itself. Yeah, I, I think with Twitter, it started off small. So the, the network effects were there. The use case was there. People were getting to the aha moment. Uh, the scaling issues emerged way later down the line. when And, and that was just because p- people wanted it too much for intrinsic, and they were intrinsically motivated to use it. Right mm. now, you're, Trump is driving people to adopt this app. And they, they haven't even experienced why it's good or anything, or they, they don't have any intrinsic motivation to use it. Yeah, I mean, really, they should have started like on with the QAnon Reddit group and then expanded slowly into like, you know, or started with the people that stormed the Capitol and then gone to the QAnon group and then gone to just like the core, you know, COVID deniers and then like the anti-vaxxers and then just like all the different concentric circles there, right? What's what's the truth social version of Snapchat making people download the app to get into frat parties? Like you have to like, it's like the anti-vaccine card. If you have truth social installed, I know <laughs> (laughs) that you probably are dangerous, but you can't eat at the restaurant. So a thing that went viral over this week was uh, an article by Derek Thompson at The Atlantic that was entitled, uh, The Five-Day Workweek is Dying. Um, And basically what it went through uh, is something that I think we're all experiencing to some extent, uh, but is the fact that um, the five-day workweek hasn't existed in a normal way for knowledge workers and a large portion of the economy over the course of the last two years. And so one of the quotes from this said, uh, it was a guy, uh, Nick Bloom, who was an economics professor at Stanford said, I talked to hundreds of companies about remote work and 95% of them now say they're going hybrid while the other 5% are going full remote. The exceptions uh, to the rule, such as Goldman Sachs, are scarce. And so he went through and laid out three um, key takeaways. I'll, I'll, I'll knock through them quickly and then get your guys' reaction. So the first was that the, the five-day work week is dying um, and that the most popular form is 
uh, hybrid between Tuesday through Thursday in the office and Monday and Friday out of the office. Um, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, backed that up and said uh, Monday and Tuesdays are the fastest days of the week for uh, travel. And more people are treating ordinary weekends as holidays. Um, the second takeaway was the age of hybrid work is going to be a beautiful mess. And so dealing with people in the office, some people out of the office, all that stuff. Um, and so that's definitely going to happen. And then the third big takeaway from it was uh, cities are starting to freak out in general. And so um, we've seen, at least in New York, Eric Adams, the mayor, is asking for people to delete the Zoom app um, and that New York actually can't function as a city uh, the way it has historically without people commuting into the office. So a lot of stuff there, but interested in your guys' um, takes on this article specifically, remote work generally. Um, Zach, I'll, I'll, I'll go to you first. Yeah, I've, I've gotten uh, screamed at online a bunch every time I've tweeted about uh, remote work. So for one, I'm, I'm eager to hear how I get screamed at for this podcast episode dropping. The thing that I, I struck me as sort of strange in all of this is I think it's, it's fairly obvious there are real drawbacks to remote work, but it's become so dogmatic to so many people's lives. And what I mean by this is this. I tweeted something fairly innocuous, what I thought was pretty obvious, which is if you're early career – Remote work is probably much, much worse for you than it is in the office, right? You miss out on the collaboration. You miss out on the mentorship, most importantly. You miss out on sort of all of the uh, unplanned, spontaneous moments of learning that happen. And you know, some people agreed. I thought it was a fairly self-apparent point. But like a lot of people were up in arms at the idea that there are any drawbacks at all to remote work. And so I'm curious, obviously, there's, we can say a lot about collaboration and talent retention, yada, yada, yada. But like, I'm curious why are people so dogmatic about this in their lifestyles? And why is it that we can't talk about the drawbacks, the very real drawbacks that people are experiencing for remote? I, I think the the separation lies between like a big company and a startup. Like if you're going to be working for a big company, the, the, you, the company is making a trade-off where they're like, we're big, we're going to let you have flexibility. Like you're not going to be dedicating your life to dr sitting in a long commute to, to you know, sit in an office. Um, but I think for at a small company, you're, you're, you're taking a different sort of trade. You know, you're, you're, you're getting more equity, you're getting more ownership. And I, I've kicked off my own product development cycle for, for my new company. And it's just the speed and quality between the remote teammates that I'm working with and the ones working at my house is like striking. I, I just don't know how, I you could certainly grow a company, like if you have a product that's already the, the flywheel's already spinning. But I, I don't know how you go zero to one remotely. There's just so much nuance and so many side conversations that are critical. Um, like with, with TBH, we designed like 90 apps and we built probably 15 of them. But the best ideas always emerged like during side conversations when everyone was like getting in in the morning and settling down. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, and it's it's also a lot more fun. Like I think that that part is we're we're losing like that that part of that part of camaraderie of uh, you know working together. Uh, so yeah, it's it, I, I don't I, I think startups will should still try to lean toward uh, working in person. Yeah, it feels like when you're early before you have product market fit, that's so much more of a creative experience. And, and Nikita, it's, it's your point. It's the early mornings, but also like, I remember very fondly, like the late nights, right? Like the, when you're in the office at 2am with the group there, both in terms of the camaraderie, but also like, there's so much real learning when you're working late at night in an office with a senior person and they were like, okay, it's, you know, one and I'm going to info dump on you. Like the last five years of shit that I've learned, like that's a pretty extraordinary moment. 
and important, yeah, both for the thing I mentioned earlier about the IC development, but also so important for product market fit too. And I, I wonder, like, maybe remote works, I think it probably does work, at least we've seen in our portfolio, uh, for companies that are playing an execution game who are further along and, and it's a question of just pouring gas in the fire and growing. But when you're still in the wilderness and you have to creatively iterate on something, I think it's just really hard without those magic moments. What I found interesting is, so uh, I, I, I invest, uh, so I'll invest after product market fit is established. And so I sort of view all of that as black magic, right? But what, what I found interesting is we're drawing these like distinctions, I think, that exist in a very real way between pre-product market fit and post-product market fit, right? And those two worlds are very, very different. But I also think there's distinctions between um, the type of person working, right? Engineer and salespeople have been remote-ish for a very long time at a lot of businesses. And I think that works because it's much more individual contributor oriented and it's less collaborative. Like there's there's things that you can execute on in a given day. And I've also found that like, so we, I, I've looked at Automatic and GitLab and Zapier and a handful of these businesses that were very remote before. And what's interesting is the, the people that gravitate to remote uh, companies actually skew a little older because they don't need the social elements uh, that that come with the office, right? And so if the average tech company is 27 or whatever, uh, from an age standpoint, these full remote companies are 34, 35, 36, because they've already established their social dynamic, right? They have families, they don't need the office for camaraderie. And so I think there are these all these ex- distinctions that exist. Now, where we're headed that I think is just going to be a fucking disaster is this whole collaboration that is going to exist in the hybrid world, right? And Automatic and GitLab, I think we're fairly dogmatic. Uh, Someone can probably look this up for us, but they were pretty dogmatic about like every meeting, no one can be a second class citizen, right? And so what that meant was even if Nikita and I are going to be in the office together, if we're going into a meeting, we need separate rooms. We're both going to be on Zoom so that everyone else was in a level playing field. Because when there's certain people in certain rooms, there's so much subtlety and conversation that happens, you know, within that room that people inevitably were going to feel like second class citizens there. And now that we're moving to this like hybrid world, some people are going to want to go into the office. Some people aren't. Some people are going to be on screen. Some meetings are going to happen, you know, not with a camera present. And I think it's just going to be a total disaster for the next three years. Well, this is not a comment on GitLab, which is a portfolio company. And so certainly not commenting on that. But what I'll say generally about this is, um, it's like fairly obvious that no matter what tooling you use or what process you have, if you have a culture where some folks are remote and some folks are in person, no matter what age, right, the remote folks are at a disadvantage. I think it's not uncontroversial. It's not, it's not controversial, rather, to say that. Or at least it ought not to be. Um, and so the question is, like, then do you find there's a sorting mechanism where the most ambitious employees, regardless of age, want to be in the office because they know that's where the first-class experience is, and you have a world where folks who say, hey, I'm really optimizing for uh, lifestyle over career right now end up being remote instead. And I wonder if that's something that we're going to see more and more of as companies try to figure out what this messy middle hybrid looks like. I've heard a story of a uh, a $5 billion plus private company uh, who in, in their offer letters actually write in still 
uh, today that that every employee, even though they've been kind of some people are going in, some people aren't, but they've been writing in. You have to live within 45 miles of uh, the office. For really? At least the executives. They're actually putting that into um, into the offer letter, which I think is uh, which I think is really interesting. I wonder if it's like early career and late career where you want to be in person, right? Early career, you want to be in person to get the mentorship. Late career, you want to be in person to collaborate with the C-suite. But if you're in sort of like mid-career, then maybe remote makes a lot of sense. And if you're happy being in mid-career, then maybe remote makes a lot of sense for you. Someone's going to write the playbook about how this actually works, right? And how to, what roles you can do it in. I think product and marketing probably are going to be a lot more collaborative and skew more in person in this hybrid world. Sales and engineering, probably less. And so someone's going to write this definitive guide of like how to make sense of all this and what age works for where. But like, it's going to be chaotic. And I think we're going to lose a lot of productivity as we get back into this office world, kind of figuring all this stuff out. Yeah, I think if if the two competitors are going toe to toe on out executing each other, it, it's it's just really hard for, to execute at a hundred percent in a totally remote context. And I, I'm curious. I, I think that we'll have some stories that play out where one company just simply executed because they say the last twenty percent of a product development cycle takes up eighty percent of the time. And that last 20%, you're hand-waving, you're talking, you're trying to communicate emotions and the, the triggers of a product. And I, I'm, I'm curious to see like, uh, if someone uh, creates an uh, in, in-person team, will they out-execute some, some other startup uh, just simply because they have more craft and they sweat the details? You know, we even see this in venture, right? Like we know that when you're chasing something that's really hot or when you're chasing a a deal you're excited about, certainly it helps to get on a plane and go meet somebody and walk in person, right? And we know that even better yet, still being in the cities and the geographies where great founders are gives you an edge that's unfair. So it certainly seems to me that that's going to be the case for most industries. As the stereotype like seems to be in the industry altogether now on the venture side, like you sort of have benchmark on one end and you have Andreessen on the other, right? Benchmark is they've been back in person for the last whatever, 18 months or something doing in person. And like that's very much core to their bespoke how they operate group. Andreessen, um, you know, people are kind of sprawled all over and they're they've made this work in a big organization, right? And so it's interesting the two of them always seem to exist at the the polar ends of like, you know, huge fund, small fund, you know, bespoke craft, big institution, right? Like in-person, remote. It's just like these two orgs kind of exist at the at the ends here. So one other uh, news item this week. Um, so ClearCo, the form- company that was formerly ClearBank, um, announced that their two co-founders um, stopped dating. So Andrew D'Souza and Michelle Romanow were in a relationship when they founded the business. Um, D'Souza served as the CEO while Romanow served as the president. Um, this is a $2 billion uh financial modern lending company. And so uh, my understanding of what they do is some form of factoring related to e-commerce. So they'll give you advances um, so that you can spend on marketing or inventory uh, if you're a D2C e-commerce business. Um, so this week they announced that they have broken up and D'Souza is stepping up to the executive role as uh, as people do. And Romanow is taking over as CEO. So they said in a statement, um, we're no longer dating, we're no longer in a personal relationship anymore, but we still care very much for each other. 
Um, and they said, we have a $2 billion baby. It was very easy when we were always in the same room. Someone would call one of us and get both of us. So I don't know your guys' opinions about this. There's been a bunch of famous uh, companies that have had a bunch uh, had success uh, founded by either dating or married co-founders. So notably, um, VMware, Di- Diane Green and Mendel Rosenblum, um, Cisco, the, the original founders were dating, Eventbrite, Kevin and Julia Hartz, um, Canva, which is now whatever, a $30, $40 billion design software, um, Cliff Bar, uh, Tootsie Roll, notably, I found in my uh, advanced research, they the husband and wife have been running the company uh, together for, for a while. So, um, Zach, I don't know any perspective here from you. Well, Logan, have you invested in any? I'm just curious, and, and Nikita and your angel investing, have you invested in any husband and wife or dating co-founders? So we have... One in the portfolio that I know, and I guess I, I, I remember it used to be something five, 10 years ago uh, that was, I think, pretty um, uh, avoided by venture capitalists. I mean, you can imagine like all the ways in which relationships can go awry, right? And then you throw in a company to it and it's like, uh, geez, that seems like some level of existential risk to the business. Um Interestingly, we've we've gotten comfortable with it. It's obviously dependent on the personalities and the the roles, and you know it's weird because you're also kind of uh, judging their personal relationship as well as their like professional relationship as we do analyzing any co-founder. Um, but it's something that I think just goes into a risk bucket like anything else, right? When you're like coming up with the pros and cons of the deal, you can't avoid this being a risk, right? Like founders breaking up is certainly a risk, but when you're throwing in all the other emotions that go with being in an actual personal relationship with someone, it's definitely enhanced risk of the founding team going the other way. Now, there's a trade-off, right? Like theoretically, they should be able to communicate better with one another. There should be a lot of trust there, all of that stuff. But it definitely goes into our risk bucket, um, but not a non-starter. What about you, Zach? Have Have you ever done it? I'm sure that uh, somebody will come out of the woodwork to say that across my career there's been some some firm. In fact, uh, I should I should say that when I was at Emergence, we were investors in uh, Clearco, and so this is not specifically about them. But I, I can't think of a, of a scenario where I personally have led or participated in an investment um, that had a husband and wife team or, or any sort of marriage or partnership team. It's it's not that it's such a huge risk. Like it certainly is a risk. It, it's more that. Um, I actually don't know that the kinds of people who get married make ideal co-founders. Like so often you want like different complementary skill sets in a co-founding team. You want the person who's hyper extrovert, who is so good. Uh, and the person who's like the introvert, who's running the operations and keeping things stable. Yeah. I, I, at a personal level, I think it's such a commitment to pick a co-founder. You end up spending more time with them than your spouse often. So like when like I'm right now in kind of a co-founder dating experience and I'm trying to like, the, the line that I give to them is, do you want to spend 10 years of, experience 10 years of mental trauma with me? That's that's essentially what you're signing up for. And if that person's also your spouse, it's, it sounds like a, a lot, a lot of exposure to the same person. Um, having said that, uh, you know, Clearco is like an incredible company. I, I've known Andrew for many years, and uh, I, I think they're going to they're going to be fine. Um, but uh, I and I totally understand. You know, if, uh, after many years, you want you might want to part ways after spending you know fourteen hours a day together. 
Yeah, Zach, to your earlier point on it, I mean, I know a lot of extroverted and introverted, like people that pair very well together as couples. And so um, I guess from a personality standpoint, I, c- I could totally see it. Um, but yeah, it, it is one of the jokes that I'll often make it when, when evaluating an investment and talking to an entrepreneur is like, listen, this is a more formal relationship and it's harder to unwind than a marriage, right? Because yeah. like marriage, you have legal recourse to like, to get out, you can get divorced, yeah. right? And that happens, whatever, 50% of the time in general. You actually can't, there's no legal recourse to get rid of your VC or your board member, right, structurally. Yeah. And and that's that's very much true with a co-founder. And so now you're conflating these, these things in such a meaningful way. And I wish, I think Canva's been the one, like Melanie's talked pretty, pretty publicly about the struggles in the early days of their their founding, right? And I don't know Diane Green and the VMware story well enough to comment on that, but I, I I know that like that was something that people were very concerned about, and they weren't married at the time. I don't I don't know if they are any, uh, today, but like they were, I think, openly dating, and people were like very apprehensive about it. And you know, it was probably a risk arbitrage on the business. I mean, clearly, whatever they're worth now, forty billion dollars, clearly it worked out. But I know that was a real concern from people uh, that that passed on the investment. I mean, I often say to founders, you wouldn't want to have a shotgun marriage, right? You shouldn't have a shotgun financing. Uh, it's not the case that you can, this is marriage without divorce, which is uh, far more serious in some ways, honestly, than a lot of marriages are where you can unwind if you need to. I wonder if this is something we're going to be seeing more and more. Like at, at the end of the day, VCs look to pattern matching or precedent, right? And so I wonder if, now that Canvas had this success and the, the examples aren't just VMware way back in the day and Cisco where the founders were ultimately fired, like now that this has actually happened, I wonder if this is going to be something that people are more comfortable doing or, or not going forward. Wait, so Zach, did you literally just yeah. say that you would take uh, an investor more seriously than your future spouse? I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm say this is going to be read is... back at the rehearsal dinner. There's going to be press play on. Uh, yeah, this is uh, everyone's the, the father of the bride is going to get up and do his little speech. And then we're going to press play on this. Well, that'll do it for the sixth episode of Three Cartoon Avatars. Uh, we will be here next week as well. Again, if if we don't get canceled. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Should we do the app thing to fade out? I thought that was pretty funny last time. I, I think we should say I think four joke, in a row. Like a dead horse. I think four in a row is more than enough of that joke. I think it'll take another fine. six for the ironic to get good. Fine, fine. I, I don't know. Anyway, I think, the, I think the app I'm launching is. <laughs> <laughs>